Well, last week I started a series of sermons on prayer called Stepping Into Light. And what we're looking at is what we're calling uh, thresholds that we cross, places that we take ourselves and cross a threshold into God's presence, places where we bring ourselves and, and hold ourselves that we expect to relate to God in those places. And last week, we looked at silence as one of those thresholds, the very act of being quiet and and listening. And today, we want to look at Scripture as another one of those thresholds where we go to pay attention to, where we go to listen for, where we go to engage with God because we know that we are in God's presence. The short passage from the 119th Psalm and the other scriptures and and also the the songs that uh, Kelly led us in today, we're going to look at Luke 4, a big part of Luke 4, verses 1 through 30. It's a a passage that's packed with all sorts of things. And my um, preaching professor, in fact, the first preaching assignment I ever got in seminary all those years ago, uh, a little over 40 years ago now, was preach one of the 30 or 40 sermons that can be preached from Luke 4. And so I'm going to preach one of those today and take a big part of it. It's a rich text, and it has a lot of insight into the role that the scriptures play in our spiritual lives in the way that we relate to God. And so uh, let's look now at Luke 4, verses 1 through 30. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil took him up to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. And then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country, and he began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. And when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, 
The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here in your hometown the things that we have heard that you did at Capernaum. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in a prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. Now when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led Jesus to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Let's pray. Lord, help us to listen. Help us to make space for things that we thought we had no space for. Help us to see you at work and to inquire into the nature of that work and to seek the ways that we can be a part of what you are already doing. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For some reason, as I worked on this sermon today, I was thinking a lot about my time in seminary and uh, hence the, the assignment made by my preaching professor and, and also two statements that I've used that I learned in seminary that uh, happened to me or that were said to me there. I've used before in sermons, but I want to remind you of them because this text has a lot to do with scripture and the function of scripture in our lives and, and what it does. And, and the two statements that occurred to me was, first of all, um, my friend Keith, who after a night of studying came into my room, we were housemates, came into my room holding this big thick commentary and saying, if God would have known what we were going to do with the Bible, he never would have given it to us. Keith's wisdom has stuck with me to this day. And the other one comes from my preaching professor who said to the class once, give me a Bible and 10 minutes and I'll prove any heresy you want me to prove. Throughout history, what is very clear is that we have done a lot of things with scripture that it was probably never meant to do and served a lot of purposes with scripture that it was probably never meant to serve. Because the Bible, quite frankly, and we know this very well, can be a weapon in the hand of both religious and irreligious people. It's a way of wielding authority and claiming to speak with the voice of God, but not quite 
being able to get there because, oh, by the way, the speaker is not God. <laughs> but when it's used for its highest purpose, it is a means by which we can deepen our relationship with God, where we can find fuel for our journey of faith with Jesus, where we can have, as Psalm 119 says, that lamp to our feet and that guide to our path. Truth is that in our hands, the Bible can be a portal for discovery of the heart of God, or it can be used in such a way that we make it a fence that walls us off from God. Go figure, the word of God being used to disconnect us from God, but it happens. At its best, the Bible is not merely a book we read. It's not merely a compilation of information that we seek to master. It is a book, quite frankly, that reads us. A means to deepen our conversation with and grow in our awareness of the love of God. And I think Luke 4 reveals how scripture can be used in both of these ways, both the way of, of, of deconstructing things and, and causing confusion, and also the way of drawing us closer and closer into the presence of God. There's two sections in this narrative. I read the whole thing. It's a long text, but it's a brilliant text. And Luke is a brilliant author and editor of the story of Jesus because of the way he puts this together. Jesus has just been baptized in Luke 3. He is, goes into the wilderness at the beginning of Luke 4 to be tempted by the devil. And the thing that is tempted over and over and over again is the thing that was confirmed at his baptism. At his baptism, the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And what does Satan do three times but challenge that identity? If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, then do this. Because that's what sons of God do, right? And so for the first two temptations... What happens is, is the devil says, if you're the son of God, then, then turn these stones into bread. If you're the son of God, then bow down and worship me. And Jesus each time turns to scripture. And he says, it is written. And so quiets the voice of the devil. And so the devil picks up on the strategy and quotes his own scripture takes a couple of lines from a couple of psalms out of context about stones and dashing one's foot and being able to be cast down and lifted up by the angels and all of that sort of thing and says, if you're the son of God, then throw yourself down from the temple. And God's word said, it is written, just like you have said to me a couple of times, it is written. It is written that this stuff's going to happen to you if you do. And Jesus, and I haven't followed this up yet to see the Greek in this, but I think it's significant that Jesus doesn't repeat the line, it is written, when he comes back to the devil this time. And he just says, it is said, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. Not going to take the bait, Satan. Twice that phrase, it is written, is used by Jesus as a way of rooting himself in the choice of faithfulness. 
And once it is used by Satan as an invitation to get around faithfulness. Satan rips a text out of context and attempts to wield it as a weapon. Jesus uses those texts as a way of somehow staying close to the heart of God. Satan's words, in some sense, are an attempt to drive a wedge between the Father and the Son. And for Jesus, the scriptures are a fuel to persist in the choice to trust God. They are the prayer, lead me not into temptation, deliver me from the time of trial. The story of Jesus reading in the synagogue is a similar kind of interesting study of the use of the scriptures, what the scriptures do in people's lives. It's another passage that shows scripture at work and and how we can use the words of scripture for both good and, and not so good purposes, how those words function for us and what kind of tools we expect them to be. Jesus is handed the scroll of of Isaiah, and he turns to that portion of it that he reads, and he reads about the Spirit of the Lord being upon him and the poor being raised up, the captives released, the blind receiving their sight, the oppressed going free, and them anticipating the favor of God. And then says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they all say, oh, wow, great. This is wonderful. This is just Joseph's son, but it's, it's amazing. Are we hearing these words come out of the mouth of Joseph's son that this passage that we're all looking to have fulfilled, that we all know is about us and about our oppression and, and our poverty and all of those things that are happening to us under the hands of the Romans that God is going to deliver us from. And now this guy's here saying, it's all going to happen. You're all going to be freed. You're going to be put on top and the Romans are going to be put on the bottom. God is going to rescue God's people, the Jews. But Jesus then has a sermon to preach on the text. And often it's not the text that gets the preacher in trouble. It's the sermon that gets the preacher in trouble. Even if that preacher sticks close to the text, which Jesus does. And all of the eyes are upon him waiting for what he has to say. And he speaks and he applies the text. And essentially what he gives them is a version of the text that's bigger than what they have space for. It means far more than they ever thought it meant. And Jesus says, you know, I know what you want. I know you want this physician to heal you. But I want to tell you that prophets aren't always really valued in their hometown. Because, you know, I read this text, but I want to draw your attention to a couple of other stories in the Bible as well. And one of them is about Elijah, the great prophet who came to provide deliverance for, for God's people. There were a lot of widows in Elijah's day during the midst of that drought and that famine where everyone was hungry and thirsty. And Elijah didn't bring help to anyone but the widow of Zarephath and Sidon. Elijah brought help and sought help from a Gentile. 
And there were many lepers in Elisha's day in, in Israel. There were lots of <clears throat> Jewish lepers, but Elisha was sent to none of them, but the general Naaman of Syria, the nation oppressing you at the time. There were many lepers in Elisha's day among the Jews, but once again, Elisha chose to serve a Gentile. Well, it didn't take them long to put two and two together and to hear what Jesus was saying. And they were angry. And they were ready to throw him off a cliff. And why were they ready to throw him off the cliff? Why did they go from speaking well of him to this furious rage that made them want to kill him? Because the scripture that he read to them began to address their hearts and began to demand that their hearts get bigger. Essentially, the scripture that he read to them as he interpreted it with other parts of the scripture was that God was much, much bigger than their explanation of God. God was much, much bigger than their box for God. And what Jesus was saying is that God is not just the God of the Jews, but the God of creation. And I'm here to help the world open their hearts to God. This is what happens when we allow the Bible to read us. When it doesn't just become a tool in our hands or a body of information that we master, when the Bible reads us, when we allow the Holy Spirit to speak through us, it becomes what the writer of Hebrews says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides the soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It pierces through to the core of the matter. So crossing the threshold in Scripture, crossing the threshold in our use of Scripture and holding ourselves there and letting it do its work is what Jesus is doing in this text. And the irony of all of this is that it's possible to use Scripture to do just the opposite of that to keep God in the box that we've constructed for him and to use that image to justify our own destructive behavior rather than allow scripture to guide us, to be the lamp to our feet and the light to our path and bring us to that faithful way and allow us to open our hearts to that big, big God whose love is more than we can ask for or even imagine. I heard a sermon once uh, not long after I finished seminary from this big, he actually was a very big man. Uh, he was also a big preacher, a very popular preacher. And, and he told this story that I haven't forgotten. And it was the story of theologian Paul Tillich, who taught at Union Seminary in New York City, being in kind of a verbal altercation with one of his students. And the student was pretty 
angry with Tillich because he didn't respect Tillich's view of scripture. For, for the student, Tillich was not orthodox enough, not valuing the, the authority and the inspiration enough for him. And, and so he angrily addressed Tillich and for these less than orthodox views and, and confronted him by holding his Bible in his hand and uh, I guess I got a Bible so I could complete that image, uh, holding his Bible in his hand and saying, is this the word of God or not? And the image that the preacher who was telling this story gave me was one of Tillich just calmly standing there and saying, well, that depends. That depends on whether or not the man shaking the Bible at me is being held on to by God. I'm reminded of our passage from last week where they left one by one, beginning with the oldest. <laughs> that would shut me up. And I would imagine it shut him up. I am personally at the stage in my life where I am far more interested in experiencing what the Bible does than getting into long conversations about what the Bible is. And what the Bible can do is lead us to a mirror where we see two reflections of ourselves quite clearly. One of our false self and one of our true self. It can show us these two reflections and then get us to work with the question of which one of these bodies do I want to occupy? Do I want to live in the confines of my own stunted imagination? Or do I want to be delivered into that broad and open space of God's power and steadfast love. Sounds to me like the latter of those two things is the real release to the captives. And that's the freedom that I want to know. Let's pray. Lead us to the threshold, O oh God, and help us to step over and see that on the other side, there is that broad and open space where we don't even feel the need to hold ourselves. We confess to you that we have trouble crossing that threshold. But once across, you show us the way to life. Help us to do that by the power of your spirit and to enjoy the fruits of being in that pasture. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.